Well, as Jonathan mentioned, um, we uh, moved here about four, a little over four years ago, four and a half years ago or so, uh, so I could attend seminary. Um, we have loved every minute at this church and um, I'm very thankful to be here, thankful to be a part of this class. Um, I have been through this class a couple of times and every time that Beth and I have come, we have learned a lot. So thankful to be able to have an opportunity to teach it. Um, Beth and I do have six kids. Our youngest is seven, and then we have them roughly about two years um, apart up to 17. So 7, 10, 12, 14, 16, and 17. So we have a wide range of ages. We have kids uh, that are still young, and then kids that are about to leave the house, which is a new and interesting uh, part of our life that, uh, yeah, you can pray for us. That we would continue to shepherd our kids in a way that would honor the Lord. Um, so, as we look at what we've been learning so far, this, uh, the, last, the first few weeks of our class, as we look at biblical parenting, Jonathan walked through in our first week uh, the foundations of biblical parenting, understanding God's design for the family. Uh, it's kind of a broad brush of what our role and responsibility is as parents. Um, the family is an instrument of instruction to the next generation of believers. And it's also an instrument of pruning for you and I, because it's not easy to parent our kids. Um, but that's our job, um, is to transform or, or do what we can. We can't guarantee anything, but to do what we can to help transform our kids from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son, into uh, the image of Christ, and ultimately, um, the goal is God's glory. So understanding God's design for the family is an instrument of instruction. And then just maintaining the right focus as parents, right? We need to focus on being faithful, not fruitful, right? Um, we want our kids to be fruitful, but our goal is faithfulness, that we are faithful to what Scripture calls us to be as parents. And we cannot make our kids believe. We can't really make them um, change their heart to love the Lord. That's a, a responsibility of the Holy Spirit to do that. And so when we're focusing on the right thing, we are focusing on the heart and not just the behavior of our kids. That is our main target, our main goal, and everything that we do is the heart of our kids. So parenting should flow out of a love for Christ, a love for them, and a desire that they would grow in training and admonition of the Lord, all to glorify Christ um, in what we're doing. Um, Ted I'm sorry, Paul Tripp opens up his parenting seminar called Getting to the Heart of Parenting by saying there are few things as important as the task that God has assigned you and me. The task that he has assigned you and me to be a part of, to be the chosen instruments of the forming of a soul of a precious image bearer of God. That is an awesome task. Parenting is filled with joy. It fills our lives with joy. It's a, it's a blessing to be a part of. It makes us, um, it brings excitement to our life, right? Just think about how boring your life would be if you didn't have kids. Your life would be boring. I know a lot of you are thinking, well, I could probably fill it with some pretty fun things. And that's true, you could, right? But it brings our life excitement, right? But it's also difficult and challenging, right? It's, it's challenging to do that. And so it helps us grow because it takes us out of our comfort zone. It messes with peace and our comfort, Right? And it, it gives a unique purpose to our life. You have a task and a responsibility that no one else has. And those, that is responsible. You are responsible to raise in the training and admonition your group of kids. No one else has that responsibility. It is unique to you. And so when we look at Ephesians 6, 4, which says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Uh, we looked at, last week, the first of two primary tools that the Lord has given us as parents to, to really make this happen. The first was discipline. And Jonathan, the last couple of weeks, if you were like me and unable to catch both of those, I would highly recommend you go back and listen to them because it's extremely helpful. The purpose of discipline, the importance of discipline, specifics of, of which discipline works in different situations, when to use the rod, how to use the rod, the heart behind discipline, which is always um, that we would, we would train our kids to love Christ. Loving correction. It should point our kids to the gospel. Um, should be shaped by the nature of our kids, that they are sinful and need correction. 
So one of the God-given tools that faithful parents have is discipline, and the other is instruction. And that's what we're going to focus on today, particularly um, informal instruction, uh, is what we're going to talk about this morning. And as we transition to instruction, it's important that we understand that discipline and instruction are not two totally separate things. Okay? You, you can think of them as two sides of the same, or different sides of the same coin. They are not separate and distinct. One of the reasons that, that discipline is so foundational, though, is because it helps train our kids so that we can uh, further train them in instruction. Okay, if your kids aren't, haven't learned to respect your authority, they're not going to sit and listen to what you have to do when you instruct them. You may have the wisest, most inspired tidbit of information that will transform your child's life. But if they haven't been disciplined to sit and listen, they're not going to learn it. They're not even going to hear it, let alone listen to what you're saying and apply it to their life. And that's why discipline is so important. It sets the table and allows for instruction. We had a uh, friend of ours up in Idaho at the church we went to before. Her name was Jody Ferguson. She was a, a older woman, the sweetest woman you can imagine. Um, and she taught eighth grade um, kids. I'm not sure what class she taught, math or something like that. And I asked her, like, how do you keep those eighth graders in, in check? Like, they're just running around like crazy all the time, full of energy. And she said, oh, I am mean. I am mean the first two months of class. I was like, oh, wow, this is a sweet old lady. I was like, she's like, I'm very strict. I'm quick to discipline those first two months. I'm the worst teacher that they, they will never want to have. And then she says, and then she said, and then the rest of the year, it's awesome. They sit and they listen. I'm, we have a great relationship. Okay, so that's not a perfect analogy. We don't need to be mean to our kids, but we need to make sure that we are maintaining discipline so that we can instruct them when the time comes. So discipline and instruction are not completely separate or distinct, but two sides of the same coin. Both are necessary to administer the other. And today we're going to look at the second tool, which is instruction. And when we think about that word, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, that word instruction literally means putting in mind, putting into the mind. Okay, and it carries two, basically two ways to do that. One is factual information. Okay, they need the facts. They need to understand what the word says. But it also has to do, this Greek word has to do with the right attitudes. So we are instructing them with the, the correct information and then the right attitudes with how to apply that. Okay, so our first kind of goal when we're looking at this is we need to understand the need for, your, for instructing your children. Understand the need for instructing your children. We need to remember how important this is, how much our kids need our instruction. So if you turn to Proverbs chapter 1, we're going to begin there. Proverbs chapter 1, which talks about the purpose of Proverbs. If you look down at verse 8, Solomon gives the recipient of these Proverbs. These, the first 29 chapters of Proverbs are written by Solomon. And he kind of sets the table here by giving us the purpose. Why is he writing these Proverbs? And it's because he has kids. He wants his sons to be wise and grow in, in wisdom for living. So verse 1 of Proverbs 1 begins... The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction. Why is Solomon write the, writing these? Well, it's so that his kids would know wisdom and instruction. That they would discern the sayings of understanding. To receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity. To give prudence to the naive and to the youth, knowledge and discretion. So you'll see there in verse 4, there's a particular word that Solomon uses to describe his children. It's a word that describes my children and your children. That word is naive. If you have an ESV, it says simple, right? And the word means simple-minded, okay? In other words, our kids are simpletons, right? That doesn't mean that they're low IQ. You know your kids are very smart. It doesn't mean that. It means that they are ignorant. They don't know. They are kids, Right? The default position for our kids is sinful rebellion. They're unwise, unrighteous, and they lack discernment. And so God gave them you as parents. Proverbs 1, uh, 1, 1 to 4 teaches that
that children are naive and need instruction. They are naive and need instruction. It's important that we understand that we need to instruct them. We want our children to grow in the training and admonition of the Lord, not the world. Um, your kids, my kids, all children are learning machines. They're constantly absorbing things all day, every day, throughout the day. They are built to absorb information. They're going to learn something. They're either going to learn what they're learning at school and that's it, or they're going to learn what they're learning at school and also what they're learning in your home. They're learning something. Now I wonder what institution God designed to give wisdom to foolish youngsters, to give instruction to ignorant children. Well, God designed the family to do just that as the primary means for instructing kids. God gave your children a specific group of people, right? You guys, as parents, to train your children. Nobody else is gifted as you are to train your kids. No one else knows them like you do. No one else has the responsibility to do that. And that's actually our second point here, that we need to embrace your responsibility to instruct your children. God has clearly in Scripture, and we're going to look at four places, clearly given, inst instructed us that it is our responsibility to instruct our children. So we begin here, if you just look a few verses down at Proverbs 1, uh, verses 8 and 9. It says, Hear, my son, your father's instructions, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are a graceful wreath to your head and an ornament around your neck. You'll notice there that the responsibility for instructing kids is given specifically to fathers and mothers. We already looked at Ephesians 6, 4 this week and last week. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The two commands here are do not provoke them to anger and bring them up or rear them in the training and admonition of the Lord. This is a command given to you guys to which you will be held accountable for. So embrace your responsibility to do that. Uh, turn with me also, if you would, to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy 6. And if you would, if you have a ribbon in your Bible, you might want to put it here in Deuteronomy 6. We'll spend most of our time in 2 uh, Timothy, but we'll be traveling back to Deuteronomy. So it might be easier if you put a ribbon in there. Deuteronomy 6, starting in verse 4 to 7. I think Jonathan went over this last week as well, but it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. Now, these verses are, are the, the central kind of heart um, in the Old Testament of God's nature and our responsibility. God is loving. He is one. He is Yahweh. There is no God but him, and he wants us to love him with all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our strength. Now, you'll notice there that this is not only true for us, that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, but we need to help instill in our children a love for God as well as our responsibility. Verse 7, you shall teach them, teach them the word of God diligently. Right? That, dilig that word diligently gives the idea of formal instruction. That you are sitting down, opening the word of God, and you are teaching them. And the word also has the idea of doing this again and again and again and again. I don't know if you've said this before, but if I've told you once, I've told you a hundred times. I say that... My mom used to say that, and I say that too. I don't know. It's kind of a dumb thing to say, but it's true, right? And, it, and that's the point, right? We're going to have to tell our kids the same things over and over and over again before they get it. We're going to have to teach them diligently, constantly. And so, verse 7 goes on to describe the informal instruction. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. So who is the recipient of this instruction? Well, it's the, our our sons and daughters, who, is the who has the obligation to instruct? It's us as parents. This responsibility is in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. Um, it's part of the Psalms. If you look at Psalm, sorry, catch up there. Here we go. Psalm 85, or 78.5. Psalm 78.5 says, For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel. God has given us his word. It's established. It's important. It is it brings fruit to our life. 
which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children. Of interest here, again, is this word that it is a command to parents. Therefore, if you are not instructing your kids, you are being disobedient in this command. And not that we don't have help in this. We do have help. I mean, the church can be a great assistance in instructing your kids. Your parent, your grandparents, or the kids' grandparents, might be a, a very critical piece to make sure that they are doing this. But you are responsible. Right? And not just responsible to make sure that they receive instruction. You are responsible to be instructing as the primary source of where they are getting the Word of God. There's a lot of supplemental and helpful programs out there, but it's not enough to just provide a Christian learning environment for your kids. You might spend big bucks on a Christian school, and that's great. I'm sure those are great. Homeschool your kids to insulate them from the wiles of the devil. Awesome, awesome opportunity to do that. Wake up early on Sunday morning and take your kids to Sunday school. Do that, absolutely. Buy all the different storybook Bibles with the best illustrations. Those are extremely helpful for younger kids. Buy all 7,000 episodes of Veggie Tales and make sure that that's all that they watch. All of those things are helpful. Maybe not the Veggie Tales thing, but most of those other things are helpful. No, Veggie Tales is great. Um, it's certainly not wrong for others to participate in that, but those things don't equal faithfulness on your part because your responsibility is to open the Word of God, teach your children both formally and informally, modeling Christ-likeness in your home. By themselves, those don't qualify as faithfulness. In fact, our four commitments here at our children's ministry at our church are the glory of God. Our com we are committed in our children's ministry to the glory of God, the Word of God, the gospel of Christ, and the responsibility of parents. Okay? We are here in our children's ministry at this church to reinforce and supplement what you guys are teaching at home. It is, your, it is chiefly your responsibility to put forth the effort and train your kids. And I know you're doing this because you're in this class. You want to do it better. And that's great. But it's going to take time and effort. It's going to take prayer to be effective. There's a, a quote from Charles Spurgeon. He said, the man of God exerts himself. Parents, we need to exert ourselves. The man of God exerts himself but does not trust in himself. We exert ourselves to make sure our kids are being trained and disciplined in, in the Lord. But we trust in the Lord for the results. And it's easy to remain faithful in this when we remember our goal. What is our goal as parents? Well, let's look at our goal. We've got to remember your goal in instructing your kids. This will give you perseverance. So embrace your responsibility for instructing your children and remember your goal in instructing your children. Turn to uh, 2 Timothy 3, please. 2 Timothy 3. We'll begin in uh, verse 14. So Timothy was a young pastor at a church in Ephesus. Paul was his spiritual father. Paul had led him to the Lord, had trained him, and now he had, had left him in this church, very important church in a very important town in the Roman Empire named Ephesus. And here in chapter 3, Paul is warning Timothy that there is difficulty to come. Things are not going to get easier for you. More than likely, they're going to get more and more difficult. And that proved true if you look at history. Now, Timothy was prone to timidity. He was prone to, to shy away from things. And in this letter, Paul writes partially to encourage Timothy to hold fast and stay the course. And that's what we need to train our kids to do, is to hold fast and stay the course. He says, you, however, continue in the things which you have learned and been convinced of. So there in verse 14, the very beginning, several things about the goal of our instruction. The first part of our goal is that they would learn the scripture and the gospel. Okay? Our first part of our goal is that they would learn the scriptures and the gospel. This is where we start, right? Your kids must know the material. They have to know the Bible. They have to know the content of the gospel in order to be saved. That God is an awesome God of all creation. That he requires us to be perfect and righteous. But we fall short every day. We are sinners which, which separate us from God. But God in his love and his mercy provided Jesus to die on the cross for us. He was raised again. And all they have to do is repent of their sins and trust alone in Jesus Christ. And they will be saved. 
That, th those facts need to be known by your kids. They need the right answers. They need to know the truth. But that's not the end goal. The end goal is not that they are able to pass a quiz on a test, or pass a test. Right? At our old church, there was this kid that um, was a absolute genius, you know, Bible whiz. I've never seen anything like it. I mean, this kid knew everything. You gave him his Awana book, and the next week he came back, and it was almost completely done. He memorized it all. Um, he was amazing. He knew how to spell Hezekiah, right? Which stuck in my brain. I don't know how to spell Hezekiah, right? This kid was awesome, right? But these truths that he learned, he was never convinced of them. He did not continue in them, and into high school, he started a, a, a very unfortunate rebellion against society, against the church, and against his parents. And I remember that hit me pretty, pretty strong because this kid was kind of what I was hoping my kids would become, right? That they would know all these truths. And this is very important, that they do know them. But that's not the end goal, okay? They need to learn the scriptures and the gospel. But the next part of our goal is that they need to be convinced of what they have learned. Convinced of what they've learned. This word convinced means to be sure of something be, because of a couple things. One, it's reality, and second, it's reliability, and to feel confident in the truth. Okay, this is when the truth begins to sink into the hearts of your kids, and it shapes their thinking. It shapes their responses. Through your consistent instruction, Lord willing, they will hear the truth, and they will begin to be convinced that it is right, and it will start changing their lives no longer nearly as subject to dilution and compromise as it would have been before. They know it, they embrace it, and they begin to live it. Last summer, we taught the six days of creation in our summer Sunday school program. And one of the goals that I had is with the, that the kids would be able to um, say what God created on all six days of creation. And so I gave the hand, you guys know the hand thing, right? Day one, God created the, heaven, the light, right? This little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine, right? So one, you want me to keep singing? I will. Right, day one, God created the light. Day two, God separated the waters, right, from the waters above, from the beneath, and created the atmosphere. Day three, God created the water, WC, and the mountains, and the plants, right? Day four, God created the sun, moon, stars, and planets. Day five, which is really fun, God created the fish, right, and the birds. And then on day six, God created the four-legged animals and the two legged people, right? And so I, my goal was that they would be able to do that. They would know what God created on every single day of creation. But that wasn't the end goal. My goal, ultimate goal, was that they would recognize the awesome God of all creation that created those awesome things in six literal 24-hour days with words from his mouth. That is an awesome God. And then that same God loves them despite their rebellion. And they would embrace this amazing God who sent Jesus to die for their sins, that they would love the creator, embrace the gospel, not just know the facts of creation, which is very important, but to know the God who created those things, that it would be a settled conviction that they would be convinced of. And when it's a settled convic conviction, guys, we pray that they would continue in what they have learned. This is the main goal, that they retain it, not just be convinced of their truthfulness, but that it remains and they use it. They never forget it. It's a life-altering transformation from darkness to light. A consistent application of biblical truths for the rest of their life. Paul's exhortation to Timothy is to continue in the things that you have learned and been con convinced of even when the going gets tough. Because it was about to get tough for Timothy. Paul says you got to know it you got to be convinced of it, and you need to continue in it. Continue in the faith. Right? We want our kids to continue in the faith because it's through per perseverance that you prove that you're a true believer. Colossians 1, 21 to 23 says, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, that's what you used to be, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Then verse 23, he says this, If indeed you continue in the faith faithfully, 
established and steadfast, not moving away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. If you are steadfast in your faith, if your kids are steadfast in your faith, you are proving that you are truly in Christ. We can't make them believe. We can't change their hearts. But the goal is that they would embrace the truth of the gospel and continue in it for the rest of their life. Continue in the faith. Also continue in obedience to live out what you've learned. There is great joy that comes with a Christian life. I want that joy for my kids. You want that joy for your kids. A great joy, a great purpose that comes with service of the king that nobody else has. Other people are just going through life trying to find a purpose. We want our kids to have the true um, purpose to build the kingdom in eternal, of eternal importance. Not just learn the facts and forget them. Jonathan mentioned that I'm currently going through an ordination training, pastoral ordination, going through seminary. A lot of facts, a lot of stuff I need to know, right? And it's great. Uh, it's a wonderful program, countless hours of study. And one day, I'm going to have an oral exam where the elders of this church are going to sit there, and for an hour and a half, I get to show them that I've learned this stuff. Okay, so that is a goal that I can get through that ordination, and that's a good goal, and I'm confident that I'm going to be able to do that. But if that's all I get out of this thing, I have wasted my time because it's not about passing a test. It's about knowing these truths, being able to explain the truth of Scripture to my kids, becoming a better parent because of this, keeping this, continuing in it for the rest of my life so I can minister at this church, minister to others. Otherwise, it's relatively useless. I don't want to waste... I don't want to waste that. We can multiply examples here. You wouldn't want your pilot to learn how to fly the plane and then quickly forget it when you get on there, right? Right. We want, it, our, we want to continue in what we have learned. Continue in the faith and continue in obedience. The ultimate goal of instructing your kids is that they would learn the word, be convinced of it themselves, and continue into adulthood. Ultimately, that they're equipped for the work of ministry. Ephesians 4.12. You might think of your goal this way. Jesus told this parable in Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So the goal for our children is not that they know what treasure is. Although if they don't know what treasure is, they're not going to recognize that it's important. That's not the goal that they know what treasure is. The goal is not that they know where the treasure is in that field. Although that's helpful information. The goal is that with joy, they would go and be all in. I need that treasure, right? I'm going to sell everything to buy that field so that I get that treasure. We want them to so appreciate what they've learned that they're convinced of it and they're all in. John Piper said, What we want for the next generation is not just heads full of right facts about the works of God, we want heads full of right facts and hearts that burn with the fire of love for the God of those facts. Hearts that will sell everything to follow Jesus into the hardest places in the world. Wednesday night at Foundations, Jonathan, Jonathan gave a helpful illustration of a fireplace. Now, when you start a fire, you want dry wood. And you, you pack as much of it as you can strategically into that fireplace. You can't light the match but you want, when the match is lit, for it to become a blazing inferno that's not going to fizzle out. I can't tell you how many fires I've started, and it just kind of blazes up and then just fizzles out. I'm like, what did I do wrong? I don't know what I did wrong, because I do it every time. But that's not what we want, right? We want it to continue to burn and then feed itself, become so hot that it's never going to go out. We want it to be a roaring blaze that's not going to fizzle out. So our objective is a heart that responds with reverence and awe and worship and faith and obedience to God. That they'd continue in what they have learned. Learn. And to accomplish this, guys, we need to put Jesus on display. Too often, we think of our parenting as being defensive, right? And there's some defense that you need to play, right? You've got to keep your kids safe, physically safe. You've got to keep them spiritually safe. You want to keep them away from, from world, too much worldly influence. I totally get that. It's part of your responsibility. But to have success in our goal, we need to be on offense. We need offensive parenting. Not passively just letting our kids absorb things, but changing what they're absorbing to be more Christ-like. Actively exalting God in our home through our speech, through how we live, what we do, 
We need to make Christ, you need to make Christ in your home more desirable than anything else that they're exposed to. So you need to recognize that your example is crucial. So understand the need for instructing your kids. Embrace your responsibility for instructing your children. Remember our goal in instructing our children. And next, we need to recognize that your example is instructing your children. And this is where we're going to be the majority of the rest of the morning. Recognizing that your example is instructing your kids. Because by and large, your kids are going to gravitate towards and they're going to love what you love. What you're passionate about, they're going to be passionate about. If you want to spark the gospel in your child's heart that will ignite into an an inferno, it'd be a lot harder if your fire is nothing but a smoldering ember that's just packed with dry or with wet wood, right? Especially when they see that you're passionate about other things. When it comes to church, not that big a deal. comes to the cowboys, that's when we really jump up and down and scream. Right? Uh, (laughs) True. Sorry about that. Um, Oh, no, maybe you light up around hunting season. When is hunting season around here? Up north, it's September. Is it like November here or something like that? No hunters in the room. Okay. Whenever that is, some guys, I mean, they just light up when it's hunting season. And other things are just kind of, you know, blah. Okay, well, you want your kids to love Jesus. You need, to be, you need Jesus to permeate your house. You need to be excited about Christ. And this is the informal training from Deuteronomy 6, verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. That's formal instruction. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. All the time. God, 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 God is awesome. Whether you're boiling water There are principles in water that are awesome. God made this to where when you heat it up to 212 degrees, it turns into steam. And we have, it has unique properties. When you freeze it, God has designed water when it hits 32 degrees to freeze. Right? Something mundane as boiling water can be an instruction on how great God is. I grew up loving, with a creepy love, the Denver Broncos. You didn't know where I was going with that, did you? The Denver Broncos were everything to me, right? Why? Because my dad and my grandpa loved the Broncos. I mean, it's unbelievable how much they loved. They bled orange and blue. They never missed a game. They talked about the Broncos all the time in the offseason, during the season. And so that rubbed off on me. Now, I didn't love the Broncos because they talked about the rules of the game of football, although it's important to know that. I didn't love the Broncos because they ran down the Raiders and the Chiefs and talked about how bad they are and I knew who not to root for. No, I love the Broncos because they were passionate and they loved them and that rubbed off on me. Now, if they told me that they loved the Broncos but never watched the games or maybe they were on kind of in the background and we never really paid attention to them, didn't know who the players were, didn't talk about that, I probably wouldn't have liked the Broncos too much, which in hindsight would have been a good thing, Right? But imagine if they would have dedicated that love towards Christ. My life could have been on a different trajectory. Now, God is sovereign over that, but I'm, and I'm thankful for my parents. But they had an opportunity, and we have an opportunity, to put on display the love of Christ. Well, it goes to something meaningless like football, to something with eternal implications. Our goal in instructing our kids, we need to put on display a love and a passion for Jesus. Now we're still here in um, 2 Timothy 3. If we continue reading in verse 14, he says, You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of. And then look what he says there knowing from whom you have learned them. Knowing from whom you have learned them. That is quite remarkable if you think about it. Timothy, why should you press on and continue in the things that you have been taught? What's the main reason that Paul, what's the first reason? Because it's in the Bible and the Bible is true? Yeah, he gets there. That's true. He eventually gets there. Is it because his mom had brilliant family devotions complete with magical puppet shows? Probably helpful. I'm sure his mom helped him do that. Yes, that's important. But the first reason is the godly example of the people who taught him. Knowing from whom you have learned them. When your child is older into young adults, they're going to begin to have temptations and difficulties in certain things. Maybe they're going to be tempted towards gossip or angry speech. Chances are, your kids are not going to say, you know, I remember my mom's brilliant exposition on the benefits of taming the tongue. 
she had this Venn diagram with all sorts of benefits, edifying speech and individual little boxes. And what we want to aim for is the middle where all those things touch. And then she had this flow chart that she brought out. And we talked through, no, she's not going to say that, right? She might remember that, but she's going to say, I remember the loving way that my mom responded to my dad when he was angry. Those are the things that are gonna rem- she's going to remember. I remember, rather than uh, participating in gossip, my mom always hoped the best in other people. She never ran down anybody. Those are the things that are going to last. Your kids will remember your actions. You could say that more is caught than taught. Now, Timothy had some wonderful examples of godliness in his life. In uh, this same book, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, Paul says, Retain the standard of the sound words which you heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ. In 1 Corinthians 11.1, Paul says, You are to be imitating me as I imitate Christ. Paul says, My life is on display. You can imitate me as I imitate Christ. Follow my example, Paul said. So he had a good example in the Apostle Paul, Timothy did, but he also had an example uh, in his home. He had a good model of Christ-likeness in his home. 2 Timothy 1.5, Paul says, For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt with your grandmother, Lois, and with your mother, Eunice. And I am sure that it is with you as well. Timothy's mother and grandmother loved the Lord, and Paul credits the example that they were in his life as a means through which the Lord used to draw him to faith. Because your life speaks volumes to your children. Your life speaks volumes to your children. Of course, the inverse is true as well. Because your life speaks volume to your kids, to give, this is a, a, a quote from J.C. Ryle's book, The Duties of Parents, says, to give good instruction and a bad example is but beckoning them with the head to show them the way to heaven while we take them by the hand and lead them in the way to hell. That's a pretty sobering quote. And guys, there's not much more damaging than acknowledging Jesus with your lips and then denying him by your lifestyle. Sitting down with your kids to study the fruits of the Spirit in some formal instruction is a great idea. It's awesome. Your kids could probably learn a lot. You may desire to do that. And it's critically important that you do that. You'll notice in, in what we read, 1 Timothy 1.13, that there were sound words that Timothy heard from Paul. It's a critical piece. So it's a great idea to sit down and give formal instruction on the fruit of the Spirit, but that must be coupled with your actions, that you are exemplifying the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control, something like that. It's not in the ordination stuff, so I don't have memorized that. But um, Formal instruction on the what and the why and the how of kindness can be really important. But how are you on the road, right? Are you unkind to the guy that cuts you off? As you're telling your kids, this is very important, guys. We've got to be kind to others. You get in the car and you are unkind to the people around you or maybe to your wife or your husband right are you consistently patient with your kids as you're training them to be patient how are we doing there if not it's a perfect opportunity for you to model confession and repentance and forgiveness mom and dad need christ too right you know kids we're learning about kindness and i'm struck with the fact that i've been disobedient in this i have not been as kind to you as i should have been i'm gonna ask the lord to forgive me And I need you to forgive me as well because your example is instructing your kids. Your life speaks volumes to your children and we have to line up what we're saying and what we're doing. John MacArthur says in his commentary on this passage, he said, says to successfully learn spiritual convictions from others and to hold them as your own, it is necessary not only to hear them clearly taught, but to see them consistently lived. It's necessary to do that. That's why Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 4.16, to pay close attention to yourselves and your teaching. Pay close attention to yourselves, your actions, and pay close attention to what you're teaching. Why? He says, persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation for both yourselves and those who hear. It's the combination of your actions and your teaching that will ensure perseverance that leads to a sure salvation in your children. 
We also saw this in Deuteronomy 6, which starts with the parents' actions. If you kept a ribbon there, you can flip back real quick. Deuteronomy 6, 1 says, Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you are going to, over to possess it, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God. You notice the first thing that he says is that you will do these things when you cross over into the land of Israel. You're going to do them. And it's after he says you've got to do them that in verse 7 he says you've got to teach it. You shall love the Lord with all, your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and your might. These words which I command you today shall be in your heart. And then verse 7, you shall teach them diligently. He says do them in the land and then teach them to your kids. To teach obedience and live in disobedience is hypocrisy. And your kids will catch up, will, will um, recognize that like that recognize the hypocrisy which will render your teaching ineffectual at best, possibly lead to rebellion at worst. Again, this is not a guarantee. I mean, we're not perfect parents by any stretch of the imagination, but it's absolutely important that we put our money where our mouth is and follow up with what we're teaching with what we're doing. Silly example here. I, when I was young, my mom started, she didn't start, she did it my whole life. She would pop her knuckles all the time. It's just what she did. Now, there's nothing wrong with popping your knuckles. It's not a sin, obviously, or anything like that. But she did it. So naturally, I just started doing it when I was like eight years old. And now I just do it without even thinking about it, right? I'm in some important meeting, and I'm just sitting around, just pop, and crack. And it's kind of ridiculous, right? And I'd rather not do that. But and so my kids are, of course, they're starting to pop their knuckles because I'm doing it. And so I've tried to reason with them, you know, it's not really good for your hands, Right? There's reasons why popping your knuckles might not be a good idea. Now, if you pop your knuckles, that's, I don't care. I'm just saying. Um, it might not be a good idea, kids. And what's their response? Well, then why are you doing it, right? And Beth's response is, they're not going to listen to you. You need to put your money where your mouth is and stop yourself if you want them to stop. And she said it much, you know, more gentle than that. But ultimately, they're not going to listen to you if you keep doing it yourself. Your kids can learn the right answers, but God's design for parenting is that they would be reinforced with your actions in informal training. So what you do, what you love, how you spend your time, what entertains you, what your priorities are, are all megaphones in teaching your children, either good or bad. You can either smooth the way to the wicked gate, smooth the, the way on the narrow path that leads to life, or you could potentially be putting up obstacles in your children's way. Uh, there's a very riveting game in the Winter Olympics called curling. I don't know if you know about this game. It is ex a very exciting game. Curling is played, and I looked this up so I got the words right. Object is to slide a piece of granite called a stone into the bullseye, right? You've probably seen this. They slide this piece of stone, and it's supposed to hit the bullseye. Okay, now the, the game is played on a playing surface called a sheet, and it's made of ice, and it's slick. Right? So there's a guy called a thrower who slides it. Okay? His job is to slide it and try to get it as close as he can on the surface. But here's the key. Right? The surface is intentionally not perfectly smooth. They spray it with water so that it has small imperfections on it. So when they throw or they slide the stone, it has a tendency to, to veer off course. Right? Naturally, it's going to do that. Or it's going to hit a particularly rough patch and it's going to slow down. And it's not going to make it all the way to the finish line all the way to the bullseye. Well, that's where the sweepers come in, right? The sweepers run in front of the stone, clearing the debris to make, a, make certain that the, if the stone starts to curl away, they can sweep it in a certain way so it curls back onto line, back onto the path. Or they can make it particularly smooth in one part to get just enough momentum so it gets all the way to the goal. Now, I know some of you have had coffee this morning, so this might be a little much, but I've got some video of what curling looks like, okay? If you think you can handle it, all right, so this is the thrower. Unfortunately, this doesn't give us a full... He does, we don't actually see him let go of the stone, which is the real dramatic part of this. But if you look in the background, you'll see, okay? Here's the thrower. That's it, okay? That's, that's what he does. And now he, his job is done, right? He's thrown the stone, okay? Now here's the sweeper, right? 
Here's the sweeper. They come in, and they make sure this is going the right speed, that it doesn't veer off course. And here comes another guy. Oh, one won't do. We need two sweepers, right? And they are going to make sure that this gets all the way. Oh, needs a little more. You're going to get there. Oh, he's got there, right? Okay. So he made it. They made it to the finish line. Okay. Now, we can't throw the stone for our kids, right? But we can live a consistent Christ-like example that will help clear the path for them, helping them continue all the way to the finish line. Now, how long would a sweeper be on the Olympic team if he talked a really good game, but he couldn't actually sweep, right? That looks hard, right? You have to sweep in just the right way, right? Or what if, what if the sweeper actually put up obstacles in the way to keep the stone from getting all the way to the finish line? He's not going to have a job very long at all, right? Well, your life speaks volumes to your kids. None of us go out of the way to sabotage our kids in their walk with the Lord, your life is either an example, though, of godliness that helps them continue all the way to the bullseye or potentially part of the problem, putting up obstacles in the way, causing them to stumble. There's a quote here by John Angle James. I think I printed it in there. It says, Parents, as you would wish your instructions and admonitions to your family to be successful, enforce them by the power of holy example. It's not enough for you to be generally pious. You must be wholly pious. Not only to be real disciples, but to be eminent ones there. Not only sincere Christians, but consistent ones. Your standard of true religion should be very high. To some parents, I would give this advice. Say less about religion to your children, or else manifest more of its influence. Leave off family prayer, or leave off family sins. Now, obviously, it's not an option for us to leave off family prayer. But the point is that your testimony has to match that in order for us to be effective parents, in order for us to instruct our children in the training and admonition of the Lord. Does that mean, again, that we have to be perfect? Right? Perfect parents that never sin? No, of course not. We are never going to do that. And that would not even give us the opportunity to model humility, to model our need for Christ, to model confession of sins, our need for forgiveness, our need for a Savior. The idea is not that mom and dad are perfect. The idea is that we are growing in the Lord. The idea is that we, our kids understand that we need Jesus as much as they need Jesus. Jesus is our Savior. He's our leader. We're following him just like we want you to follow Christ. So generally speaking, your example will either affirm and strengthen the biblical truths that you are teaching or it will undermine it. But real quick, I want to give a couple of specific ways um, that your life can impact your kids. Your life speaks volumes to your children, and your worship is contagious with your children. I don't know if you've ever had, and I'm sure you have if you have kids, like a flu virus go through your house, and it's like the Grim Reaper. It hits everybody, right? It goes through, and everybody gets hit because it's contagious. Everybody's going to catch it, and you know it's going to hit you. Right? Well, your worship is contagious to your kids. We, wanna, we want to love him with all our hearts. This is illustrated for us in Exodus chapter 20. If you want to turn over there real quick. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1. Um, begins with, Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness. So God is saying there's only one God. Worship the one God and no idols. Okay? Big important thing. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. So what is... What is um, Moses teaching here? What is God teaching here when he speaks these words? This is not teaching that children will be punished for the sins of their parents, right? Moses makes that clear in a couple ways. Ezekiel says in 1820 that a parent, a parent who sins who dies will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity. So each person is responsible for their in, own sin in God's eyes and will be judged accordingly. However, the natural consequences of sin can last for generations. And particularly, in the context here, it has to do with worship. 
right? So this is teaching that who you worship and how you worship matters greatly. It matters to you. It matters to your kids. It matters to your kids' kids and your kids' kids' kids. I think that's right. In other words, God's not going to say, I won't punish this generation for their idolatry, for what they're doing. After all, they just learned it from their parents. That will not be an excuse. If your children follow in your footsteps and worship something other than the creator of all, of all things, they will be punished for that. They will be accountable from what, for what they learned from you. And that's why the who, who we worship and how we worship matters. But you'll notice in verse 6 that God will show loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. This goes both ways. We have a great opportunity to put on display Christ in our homes and have that trickle down to thousands. Because children learn to handle life by watching their parents. When children watch their parents spend their time, their money, their energy on worldly pursuit, they're naturally going to follow that path. It doesn't have to be sinful things, but, but it's anything that captures your heart. Obviously, you probably don't have an idol in your home that you're bowing down to, but what is it that captures your heart? What do your kids know that you care most about? What do your kids think you worship? Do they know that you treasure Christ more than your job or your possessions or your comfort or your respect or your family or your spouse or even your kids? Do they know that you love Jesus more than any of those things? Dads, if your son asked your, if, if your son's friend asked him, what does your dad care most about? What would they say? Moms, if your daughter said, um, if your daughter were asked, what does your mom love? Would she answer, you know, my mom enjoys doing a lot of things, but she loves Jesus. And I see that in our home all the time. Because what you worship matters. Worship is contagious. What you worship matters. And how you worship matters. We need to model that corporate worship is important. Deuteronomy 31, verse 11 and 12 says, When all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place which he will choose, and you shall read this law in front of Israel in your hearing, assemble the people, the men and the women and the children and the alien who is in your town, so that they may hear and learn and fear the Lord your God and be careful to observe all things. Moses is saying, when you get into the land of Israel, we're about to cross into the land of Israel. Periodically, I want you to gather everybody together. I want you to get the men and the women, the, the, the Jewish people. I want you to gather the aliens that are in your midst. Everyone comes together with the children. To do what? To do something really exciting. They're going to read the law. Right? That doesn't sound super exciting for kids, does it? But it also doesn't sound like they have a kids program. They're all going to join together. They're all going to watch this happen at the same time. Why? So that they can first hear and learn. If you gather your kids with you in a corporate worship, they're not going to hear and learn everything. You don't hear and learn everything. Neither do I. But they'll learn some, even if it's just the main point. They're getting something from that corporate worship. But beyond that, in verse 12 there, it says that the purpose for the gathering is that they would hear and learn and that they would fear the Lord. There's something unique that happens when we gather together and do something that you don't do any other time in your life. When you open up your, your heart in worship to God and you sing praises to Christ, you, you open up the word of God and you take notes. This is important, right? This is not stuff that you do in, at Kroger. Right? You don't open up in song at, at Kroger when you're amongst people like that. No, when you gather at church at a worship service, um, Moses says that your kids will learn to fear the Lord. It's something different that's happening. That's why kids, when they're old enough to join you in the worship service, we encourage them to do that so that they would benefit from the teaching, but also they will see you singing with gusto, engaged in the worship service taking notes, something that you don't do when you watch the Maverick game, right? You don't take notes when you watch your favorite TV program, probably, right? But your kids will see that this is different. This is, this is something that we need to, to embrace wholeheartedly. We're gathering together and we're singing praises to God. Again, your example is important. You need to sing with gusto. You need to be engaged. You need to be taking notes if that's helpful for you. If, you, if they see you aloof and kind of mumbling through the songs and checking your fantasy football scores, that's not going to be helpful at all. That'll put up an obstacle. 
I got a, a uh, quote here from uh, John and Noel Piper. It says, very helpful. Parents have the responsibility to teach their children by their own example the meaning and value of worship. Therefore, parents should want their children with them in worship so that children can catch the spirit and, f and, and from their parents and form of their parents' worship. They should see how mom and dad sing praises to God with joy on their faces and how they listen hungrily to the word. They should catch the spirit of their parents meeting in the, uh, the living God. Something seems wrong when parents take their children in the formative years and put them with other children and other adults to form their attitudes and behavior in worship. Parents should be jealous to model for their children the tremendous value they put on reverence in the presence of Almighty God. Now you have the freedom as parents to choose what age this is best for you, but we encourage you to bring your kids with you to the worship center so they can see you worship, see how you worship, and see that this is important to you. Now we have dozens of people in our children's ministry who take hours of their week every week and they study they take very seriously the lessons and the activities that they plan for your kids. It's a great opportunity that we have in this church so that, you know, we can come to a class like this and learn how to be better, better parents and know that our kids are being trained in an age-appropriate way in the children's ministry. But the blessing of having more than one service is that they can have their cake and eat it too, right? You can take them to one service and then you can be trained and they can be trained in another. They can see you sing praises to, the God, to God open up your Bible, learn from your pastor, and then they will follow you when you do that. So you can begin instructing your kids to sit through the worship service at a pretty early age, earlier than you think, okay? Now, I printed some helpful tips there um, to help you if you're looking to transition to do that, to, to bring your kids. Um, these are also printed. I'm not going to take the time to read them, but they are printed in this Countryside Kids in Worship. Now, we'll look at some resources next week. But this is a helpful tool. You know, your kids can, can take notes in this. And in the back, some of these things that we have, have, have put into your handout, uh, these helpful tips are in there as well. But you want your worship to be contagious. We all want our kids to catch the worship germ for us because, from us because your life speaks volumes. What you worship matters. How you worship matters. And then next... Recognize that your example is instructing your children and that your marriage preaches the gospel to your children. Now, there are a lot of reasons why God values marriage. And one of the reasons is highlighted for us in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. Your marriage is a God-given picture of the gospel. These verses teach that the relationship of the wife in marriage is a perfect picture of God's submission to Christ, or it should be. It should be a picture of that. Verses 22 and 20 to 24. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. Just as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their own husbands in everything. So wives, when you lovingly trust your husband and submit to their authority in your home, you're putting on display trust and loving obedience to God. Your kids will see that. The way we are to submit to Christ. And the relationship of the husband to the wife is a picture of Christ's love for his bride, love for his church, 25 to 30 says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present her to himself, the church, in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be, should be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church because we are members of his body. It's a picture of the gospel, and it's by design. God designed marriage to be a picture of the gospel, and we have an opportunity to preach the gospel in our marriage. Now, there is a lengthy quote there um, that is so good that I'm going to read it, okay? I could explain this to you and paraphrase it, but it's really good. I want to read this to you, okay? So follow along. This is by William 
Marley. It says, The gospel is the good news that the groom loves his bride. He loved her so much that he humbled himself, descended an infinite distance, became man, and suffered poverty and abuse for 33 years. Then in the greatest display of love and history, he allowed himself to be tortured to death on a cross in place of his bride. The Son of God did all this to serve his bride, to make peace where enmity reigned. What motivated him? Love that surpasses knowledge. He longed to unite himself in irrevocable love with an unworthy bride. But the gospel is not just about the groom's love. It also provides a response from his bride. When understood from the heart, it motivates her to humble herself, love the groom with all her heart, respect him, and serve him with joyful abandon. The gospel summons Christ's bride to yield to the servant authority of her crucified king. Here's Paul's point from these passages that we read. Christian marriage preaches this union. It makes it either attractive or ugly. Your marriage can make Jesus Christ either attractive to your kids or ugly and repugnant. When a husband loves his wife as Christ loved the church, washing her in the word, forgiving her, serving her, tenderly leading her, his marriage says Christ loves his church. You can trust the groom. He is infinitely loving. Serve him. You won't be disappointed. But when a husband is unfaithful to his wife or verbally belittles her, loves his children more than her or takes her for granted, his marriage says that Christ's love is not that great. He loves us only when we perform. You can't trust this Savior. You can't meet his expectations. He doesn't keep his promises. Why serve a fickle despot? Wives also preach. When mom joyfully submits to her husband as to the Lord, recognizing that he is her head as Christ is head of the church, and that she is his body as the church is the body of Christ, it makes an attractive statement. When she does this from a, for an unworthy husband, not only does she trust him, but because, not because she trusts him, but because she trusts Christ to care for her and points her children to Christ. Her behavior says Christ is worthy, the Son of God is infinitely good, and you can trust him. But when a wife tells her children to obey Christ, yet doesn't trust him enough to take care of her uh, relationship, with an imperfect husband, but seeks to control him, resist his authority, refuses to respect him, and declines to serve him, her actions speak loudly. They say the Son of God cannot be trusted. He promises to exalt the humble, but I don't believe he'll do it for me. He says he will take care of those who submit to lawful authority, but I really don't believe that. If I don't take care of myself, who will? And here's basically what we've been talking about for the, next, for the last 30 minutes. In most cases, her children will internalize what she does and not what she says. Guys, we have an amazing opportunity, but it's also very sobering, right? What your kid, we want our kids to understand how much Jesus loves them from just watching your marriage. Guys, how much you love your wives. Wives, how much you are submitting to your husbands. We want our kids to submit their lives to the king, and your marriage can put that on display. So how are we doing here? Dads, if your kids heard that how you are loving your wife exemplifies that Christ loves his church, exactly how Christ is supposed to do that, would that be helpful or hurtful? Moms, if your children read that the way they're currently submitting to your, that you are currently submitting to your husband is a picture of how they are to submit and respect Christ, what would they think? Because we have a powerful opportunity to preach the gospel in our homes and in our marriages. That um, informal instruction is vitally, vitally important. So we understand the need for instructing your children. We need to embrace the responsibility for instructing your kids. Remember your goal in instructing your children and recognize that your example is instructing your children. And then the last thing we'll get here to this morning is we need to prioritize Scripture in instructing our children. Prioritize Scripture. Looking back at 2 Timothy, it says, You, however, continue in the things that you have learned to become convinced of, knowing from you whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings. All Scripture, he says, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. Um, Timothy had known these things from childhood. That word literally means from infancy. 
Before he could really understand what was being read, he was seeing the word of God opened, seeing that, it, that there was a reverency behind it, and seeing that it was important to him and his household. When my, we a lot of times think that, well, you know, my kids are, are too young to open up the word and teach them. But from a very young age, literally infancy, they can see how important that is. Then what are the scriptures able to do? Well, it is the scriptures that change the heart. We need to prioritize scripture in instructing our kids because scripture gives wisdom for salvation. The ultimate goal, again, is that they would put their faith and trust in Christ, that they would continue in that for their whole, for their whole life. Scripture gives wisdom for salvation. From childhood, he says, you have known the sacred writings which are able to give wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. So where is salvation found? It's found in the scriptures. It's found in the scriptures. The scriptures lead your child to embrace the Savior. Now because we long for our children to embrace the Savior, guys, our instruction needs to be dripping with the word of God. We need to be in the word of God all the time. Psalm 19:7, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. It's the word of God that will restore the heart. Psalm, Romans 10, faith comes from hearing the word of Christ, not simply random verses, but the entire biblical narrative, right? Not a quick jaunt down the Romans road and you're done. No, a constant opening up of the word of God, turning your, your home into a biblical worldview where God is honored, where his word is held up as paramount, that they would understand that God is the creator, that they are sinful, that God has a plan of redemption through Christ Jesus, and that they must put their faith, hope, and trust in Jesus Christ in order to be saved. Scripture gives wisdom for salvation. We also need to prioritize scripture in training our children because scripture is profitable. It's profitable for several things. All scripture is inspired by God or breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And we will pick it up there next time as we look at exactly what things the scriptures are profitable for. But guys, as I close here, um, I just wanted to make sure that um, I let you guys know that it's never, never too late to transform your home into a, a place where the gospel is sinner, that God is honored, and that your home can be a place where Christ is worshipped. Now, if, as, as I have many, many times, if you've fallen short of this goal, then it's not too late. Take your kids to Scripture. Say, I have fallen short in several of these things, and, and we're going we're gonna to change today. I'm going to be patient. Okay? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be more Christ-like. It's never too late um, to begin um, showing the love of Christ to your kids and how we operate every single day. Okay, so I'm going to pray for us. And then if you have any questions, I'm happy to answer them. I know Jonathan is happy to answer questions as well. Um, if you did, we can do that kind of in a corporate setting here if you guys wanted to raise your hands. Um, if there are no questions, that's perfectly fine as well. Um, but if you have something to ask and you're kind of wanting to do that just in a one-on-one -on -one way, I'll be here for a couple of minutes afterwards as well. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for you and your goodness and your kindness and your gentleness with us. Lord, help for us to put on display um, your love in our homes. Lord, I pray that we would understand that our example, Lord, is ministering to our kids, either good or bad. Lord, give us the strength to do that. Lord, I pray for our kids, Lord. I pray that they would come to know you and love you and serve you at an early age. Lord, that our kids would never know a day where you are not honored in our home and that they didn't accept you and love you and serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.